Erev Tov, everyone. Good evening and welcome to Ground Waves. There is no such thing as a stranger, only the impression of strangeness, born out of a failure to acknowledge that others share both our needs and our weaknesses. Nothing could be nobler or more fully human than to perceive that we are indeed fundamentally in every way that really matters, just like everyone else. These are words of one of my favorite contemporary philosophers, Alain de Botton. High on a hill in the upper Galilee lies an ancient village called Jish in Arabic or Gush Chalav in Hebrew, which literally means block of milk indicating the fertile grounds around this beautiful small town. From its slopes, the views are amongst the most breathtaking in Israel. The village has a history that dates back over 5,000 years, with the Jewish presence most significant during the time of the Second Temple, just over 2,000 years ago. Today, it's home to Maronite Christians and to Muslims. The peaceful relationship that their communities have enjoyed has become a model for all kinds of coexistence work in Israel and abroad. On one of our trips to Israel, we learned how their commitment to peaceful fellowship runs deeper than meets the eye. Our friend Gaius Smith, an artist in Yerushalayim, insisted that during that trip we spend a few days up north and that we go meet George Sama'an, who lives in Gush Chalev. George is a musician who owns an extraordinary home, beautiful, beautiful home in the village, whose exterior is blanketed in colorful flowers and which serves as a bed and breakfast for those who wish to spend the night. On that stunning summer afternoon, we pulled up in front of George's house just as another musician, a young Jewish Israeli, was taking his leave, having just finished a rehearsal with George for an upcoming gig they had together. George took us for a walking tour of the village and some of its famous ruins, including a fourth century mausoleum and a gorgeous Maronite church. There are also ruins of two ancient synagogues in Gush Chalev. And after, George took us into his home, which has an inner courtyard laced with overflowing grapevines decorated with old farming tools from the original owners of the house. He served us the most delicious tea and fragrant fruit, and then George began to play. He serenaded us with his oud and with his lute. He played us music that he recorded together with Ehud Banai, one of Israel's top musical artists, as well as some of his own compositions. And then George began to talk. He shared with us how he had traveled to the States together with Israeli Jewish musicians as part of a joint Arab-Israeli project sponsored by the Bronfman Foundation. George spoke about his passion for music, or rather, about his music for passion. George said to us, on my birth certificate, I'm listed as a Christian, but I am no more a Christian than you are a Jew, Dini. And there are no such people as Muslims. There's only one race, and that is the human race. Music, Dini, he said, is my religion. George explained to us that he had started translating Hebrew prayers into Arabic. 
and the next minute we were listening to him sing Yedid Nefesh in Arabic. Yedid Nefesh is one of the most beautiful pieces of Hebrew liturgical poetry, written in the 16th century by the mystics of Tzfat, which was only seven kilometers from where we were sitting in Gush Chalav. Song about the love between God and humanity. It opens our Friday night services. To hear Yedid Nefesh, our gorgeous love song sung in Arabic, a language sadly often experienced as the language of our enemies, was striking. George went on to describe how every Friday he would visit the nearby Mitzpeh Yamim Spa in Rosh Pina to lead their guests in a music and poetry-filled Kabbalat Shabbat program, a welcome of Shabbat that we celebrate as Jews and that is a time for not just Jewish people but for others a time of rest and reflection at the end of the week. He said, me, could you believe it? Me, a goy, using the derogatory word for Gentile, leading Jews in prayer. He said, what do you think, Dini? What do you think? What do I think? There is no such thing as a stranger, only the impression of strangeness born out of a failure to acknowledge that others share both our needs and our weaknesses. Nothing could be nobler or more fully human than to perceive that we are indeed fundamentally, in every way that really matters, just like everyone else. Yo 
Yoav Peck is a longtime peace activist who lives in Yerushalayim. Yoav is currently the director of an organization called Sulcha. He also works as an organizational psychologist, specializing in systemic programs for the advancement of human dignity. Yoav is a founder of Beyond Persuasion, which is a project for training peace activists in the art of reaching out to hostile or indifferent populations. He has three children and is committed to creating a viable and peaceful future for his three grandchildren. Given the recent threats of annexation and the discussions and anxieties it produced in Israel, in the West Bank, around the world, in Jewish communities, Palestinian communities, and amongst those who care about not just a safe Israel, but a just Israel, I thought it would be timely for us to talk with Yoav. As you can imagine, the time difference between here and Israel made it a little challenging to invite Yoav to be up in the middle of the night to talk to us. So I pre-recorded this interview with Yoav, and I invite you to listen to it now. Yoav, welcome to Ground Waves. It is so nice to be together again. I still, I have such great memories of the morning that we spent together in New Jersey when you, together with Fula, back in 2017, Fula, one of your Palestinian partners, you came to my home to an event for Sha'ar and made such a beautiful, powerful presentation about the work that you do at Sulcha. And you left our community feeling empowered about how important the role of person-to-person -person narrative is in making change on the ground, bringing people together face-to-face, -to -face, encountering shared humanity as a, as a way towards deeper and more respectful uh, coexistence. So I'm thrilled to have you back here on Ground Waves. And, I'm uh, delight delighted to be here. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Let's start with you telling us a little bit about Sulcha and how you became involved, why you became involved. Sulcha has been in existence for 20 years. The word uh, Sulcha means reconciliation in Arabic, and it's uh, used in Hebrew uh, when people want to say, let's uh, make up or let's get over this fight. People say, let's have a Sulcha. So it's used in both languages. <clears throat> And uh, 10 years ago, uh, I was kind of in the desert. I, was, uh, I had been on the national board of uh, Peace Now and um, was very active in sort of the mainstream peace movement, but I didn't like the way things were being run. I didn't like the way people were treating each other. I felt like if we're working for peace, how come we're tearing each other apart in meetings? And I tried to make a change and it didn't work and I, I just uh, left. And uh, I stumbled into Sulcha and from the first moment I loved what I saw because uh, Sulcha is a peace movement that's founded on the principle of humanizing the conflict. That the conflict is dehumanizing, um, dehumanizing and demonizing of the other side and it's those tendencies 
are what create the kind of um, nastiness on both sides. And uh, I was looking for a place that was con coherent, co consonant with my personal values. I'm an organizational psychologist, and I believe that people can solve problems when they talk to each other um, and not at each other. And, and uh, uh, the more I got to know Sulcha, the more I saw that what's happening in Sulcha is people to people, heart to heart um, connection, which is really the, um, the bottom slice of the sandwich. If, if uh, the conflict is the meat, then the political level is the top slice of bread, but the people-to-people -people level is the bottom slice. And neither uh, the people-to-people -people nor the political uh, levels are going to uh, make the difference without the other side, without the other slice. Um, so we do not lobby uh, um, Knesset members. And uh, when I need to go to a demonstration, I join one of the other organizations. What we are about at Sulcha is bringing people together, which we do every six weeks, uh, 80 to 100 people, Palestinians from across the occupied territories and Israelis from all over Israel, uh, for five hours of people to people um, connecting, discovering, as you said earlier, our common humanity by using um, listening circles, which are extremely intimate and um, don't include uh, uh, convincing anyone of anything, or we rarely talk uh, about political positions. It's much more, who are you? What's your life like? What's my life like? What do we share? What's different about our experience? And that's the level at which uh, we connect. We use prayer, we use music, we use food, um, and informal time. Um, but the key uh, piece of it is the, the listening circles. And after five hours, people inevitably go home, often with tears in their eyes, with a song in their heart, and some hope. Um, and that's what we're about. Such a beautiful, beautiful way to approach the conflict and uh, I'm just so grateful to know you and to to have you share that part of the story with us tonight in particular I am eager to hear your thoughts on one of the current stressors on the kinds of relationships that you're building um, in terms of the threats of annexation that have been circling but before we get to that you have I wonder if you can just briefly tell us how the COVID crisis which has resurged of course in Israel how that's affected the work that you're doing, what the reality is on the ground um, for the people that you work with. Well, um, you know, personally, I'm experiencing what I call uh, Corona light. You know, for a white Ashkenazi uh, college-educated professional in Jerusalem, this is not so stressful. I mean, it's, uh, it's irritating uh, and, of course, saddening to see the suffering around, uh, around me. But uh, for the Palestinians, um, the corona COVID crisis has been uh, excruciating. Um, many people have lost their jobs um, and are at home and uh, don't have big savings accounts if they have an account at all. 
um, the family networks are very strong, so they keep take care of each other. But um, the meetings that we're used to doing have been impossible. Uh, we've been holding Zoom meetings, which are better than nothing, but uh, far from the kind of contact that we're used to. Um, and uh, at some point uh, during Ramadan, uh, we realized that the Zoom meetings just weren't enough. And uh, we mounted a, um, a food campaign. In a couple of weeks, we raised about five or $6,000 and, uh, and distributed food to hundreds of families uh, in five different localities and the territories because dialogue seemed less important than really uh, addressing the uh, immediate needs of, of families that didn't have food to put on the table even during the, the holiday of Ramadan. So um, we did that and uh, of course, it, it was good for Sulcha as well because people understood that we don't only meet and talk and hug, we also uh, provide uh, a real support when it's needed. Um, but it's, uh, it's crippled our attempts to um, connect. There's another piece uh, that was there before the, the Corona crisis. We call it Corona here. I guess you all call it COVID. Um, but uh, we're talking about the same thing. Uh, and the additional uh, problem was the anti-normalization uh, people in Palestine. In Palestine, there are um, uh, young people who see any form of cooperation with Israelis as uh, compromising uh, a Palestinian identity, as normalizing, behaving as though you can act normally uh, when there's an occupation on. And um, we were subject to uh, physical threats on uh, myself, on uh, Palestinian leaders, um, and uh, ho hotels canceled events. Um, so in addition to Corona, we have had this normalization um, irritation and uh, it's, uh, it's made it quite difficult for us all to get together. You have, that might be a, a good segue for us to ask the crux of, uh, of, of the, the conversation that I hope that we'll be able to have now, which is how all this discussion about annexation has um, amplified for you some of the tensions around the work that you do. What are, what are the populations that you're bringing together? What are people talking about? What are people fearing? What are people preparing for? Has has talk of the alignment uh, between the PA and Hamas given pause to some of your Jewish participants? How do you know others who feel threatened by the, the concept of annexation respond? Well, it, I, I just have to say that any discussion of annexation uh, before talking about occupation um, is sort of pulling it, pulling annexation out of context. So I just want to remind uh, your viewers that uh, for 53 years, uh, Israel has occupied 22% um, of uh, the original Palestine uh, uh, in the West Bank and in the Golan Heights and in Gaza. So um, the Palestinians never forget that. 
um, for them, closure, when we complain about closure of uh, our cities, uh, they laugh because they've been living under off and on closure for 53 years. Uh, and now that there's a new wave of, uh, of Corona in the Palestinian Authority, they're, um, they're laughing about closure within closure. Um, uh, so we have to start with occupation and all of the uh, uh, profound impact that that has had on both the Palestinians and uh, Israel. As I always say, uh, occupation is bad for the prisoner, but also for the jailer. And it's been bad for Israel in so many ways. So then comes along uh, your president and my prime minister, um, who uh, cooked up this, uh, uh, this idea of annexing 30% of the West Bank. And um, the way that they did it is the first problem, the primary problem, um, because the way they did it was if I had a fight with my wife and I went to talk to my neighbor about my problems and then he and I made a decision about what I should do with my wife and I came back and announced it to her, that is an exact parallel of what Trump and Netanyahu have done to the Palestinians. Um, they had no say and no part in any of the negotiation that happened in the White House or over here or secretly or where, wherever. And one day they were just landed with this, uh, this new fait uh, accompli. So um, that's deeply insulting. Um, it's also completely unrealistic since uh, uh, dragging someone into an agreement that he's had no part in forging and creating uh, is a losing game from the outset. But then when you begin to look at the details of what annexation will mean, which I think uh, more scholars outside the two governments have done than the people inside the governments, they really have no idea what, they, what, what the monster is that they're proposing. 500 new kilometers of borders around 50, what is it, 43 uh, enclaves in which the Palestinians will be living. The Palestinians will have no borders with anyone, any country other than Israel. 43 enclaves throughout the West Bank, surrounded by Israeli army and Israeli roads and settlers. Um, and uh, people wonder why we are all saying there will be enormous violence because once th this spells the end of the two-state solution, the, the, the hope that has been kept alive uh, since Oslo, since the early 90s, that a, a negotiated settlement in which Palestinians agree to accept 22% of the original Palestine and to create a state there alongside the state of Israel, which they recognized already in 1988. Um, and that will be demolished. That's the end of it. We create occupation as a permanent state of affairs. And uh, it really looks more and more like apartheid uh, than uh, any, any of us would like to uh, acknowledge. So, um, the annexation, uh, I mean, July 1st came and went, but uh, we all are living with the sense that uh, 
uh, one day uh, President Trump will give the nod to uh, Netanyahu and he will either uh, begin to um, uh, try to uh, implement the annexation uh, plan or symbolically do one or two small things, which is much more likely. But for the Palestinians, any step towards uh, realizing the annexation plan is going to light the fuse of the explosive situation that exists there now. And how do you think that would affect the work of Sulcha, the kinds of initiatives that you undertake, the human to human, the capacity to see the humanity in one another? Listen, uh, in, in 2014, when uh, the last incursion into uh, Gaza took place, we held a Sulcha gathering under, in a state of war uh, where 50 people got together uh, um, midway between uh, um, Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. And as we met on the lawn, uh, missiles went overhead and were shot down by Israeli missiles. At the same meeting, a man who had a big family in Gaza and had lost 17 members of his family, extended family, um, shared what he was feeling. And after him, a, an Israeli mother with three boys in the army uh, shared what she was experiencing. And every one of the 50 people listened to both of them. So the power of people to people connecting is there and uh, we will continue to do what we do under whatever conditions uh, uh, we have to do it. But uh, it, will be, um, it will be devastating uh, to the general situation. You know, um, sometimes people, Palestinians show up for our gatherings just the day after having been harassed at a roadblock and it takes them a couple of hours to unwind the bitterness that they're still carrying from the day before but they do it when they know that there's someone there who is expressing actively how much he cares about the other person's experience um the world just opens up for people and uh and we'll we'll just continue but um the annexation blow will be uh, uh, very hard. Uh, I, I expect that there will be a renewal of terror and uh, it will be more and more difficult to get, uh, get people together. Um, at this point, it's been three months since Palestinians could get permits to come into Israel. So um, all of our gathering, any gathering we have is in the territories. And uh, the anti-normalization people are watching us. So that's not simple. Uh, the Palestinian uh, undercover police are also interested in us. And they bring some of our people in for interrogation sometimes. So it will get uh, even more difficult. But um, we have a lot of heart and a, a lot of good people, uh, some of whom you know. And uh, we'll be able to uh, make our way through it. You know, I want to ask you a question that, um, that is very live for many communities today, communities who are decidedly 
you know, pro-Israel, Jewish communities I'm, I'm referring to, who are decidedly pro-Israel, also pro-peace, who are supportive of the Palestinian yearning for independence and, of course, for dignity. Um, language is important. The word annexation, the word normalization. There's been a lot of discussion around referring to Israel as Israel or as Israel-Palestine. Um, and there's more than just, there's more just than just words in that question, right? There's deep symbolism and deep messaging. Um, in the same way, the tension between referring to the state of Israel or the Jewish state raises um, similar deep wrestling with, with the messaging that emerges. Does the, does the name Israel-Palestine suggest a vision of what some are, are now talking about even, even more so, a single binational state, or does it acknowledge the intertwining of two fates whose long-term relationship has yet to be resolved? How would you guide, given, given the work that you've done, how would you guide a community that's discussing this question? What's at stake on either side of that choice? Well, to my mind, uh, what this is really about is the future and uh, the way that we're going to approach the future. Um, you know, what is the place we stand in? What is the place we're coming from as we look to the future? So I use the expression Israel-Palestine when I'm talking about possible solutions for the future. Uh, the COVID crisis has made it so clear with germs floating back and forth across the borders um, that we're completely interdependent. The Israelis who delude themselves into thinking that we can put up a wall eight meters tall and they'll be over there and we'll be over here and we'll never hear from them again. It's just not workable. I mean, if you look at groundwater, which flows under the border, uh, if you look at uh, a... a infrastructure and electricity and, and water supply and all of it were all so inextricably bound up with each other that talking about Israel-Palestine is a healthy way to start looking towards the future. Now, when I'm concerned about what's happening in Israel to the Jews, to the Israelis, um, I talk about Israel uh, because that's about us, and we have plenty of stuff to handle within our family. But um, when you're looking for a comprehensive future that's going to work for everyone, just as with COVID, if I don't make sure that you're safe, I won't be safe. It's the same thing with this conflict. If we don't get Israelis to understand that the well-being of the Palestinians is in our self-interest, and the opposite, of course, is true, um, we're never going to break forward uh, into the future. So I think uh, adopting new language is wonderful. Uh, I just want to say that this uh, annexation business <clears throat> has yielded some positive fruits, uh, one of which is that the right is conflicted. There are many on the right who want to adopt Trump's plan, and there are many who refuse to adopt it because it includes the recognition, of, ultimately, of what Trump calls a Palestinian state, although it won't be much of a state under his plan. But the right is divided. The left 
is recognizing that uh, the Oslo process is either in its last gasps or is dead already. So what all of that means for both the right and the left is that we better start looking outside the box. We better start redefining the way we think about all of this. I personally was a 35-year, two-state solution, uh, steadfast supporter, and now I'm not sure. And there are new plans uh, being floated. A, a, a friend interviewed a 100 people, um, activists on both sides, Palestinians and Israelis, and he came up with something like 15 different proposals for what could happen in the near future and in the distant future. So I, I think the good news about this uh, enormous upheaval is that the cards have been thrown in the air and they're going to land in new ways that we haven't even imagined. Um, one notable uh, example is a movement called Two States, One Homeland, uh, which basically holds that there can be two states, Israel and Palestine, but that the settlers can remain living inside of Palestine and be Israeli citizens and vote in our elections, and that Palestinians can live inside of Israel, but they'll be Palestinian citizens. And of course, a solution like that requires sea change uh, that's enormous, but it's probably more likely than the old two-state solution, which included uh, um, evacuating at least 100,000 uh, settlers from their homes, which would have been catastrophic uh, when you think about how hard it was to move 7,000 settlers from the Gaza Strip. So the language is important, but it's really about how we're willing to conceptualize uh, a new future. You know, that's a, that's a beautiful way to bring our time together to a close. Um, there's obviously so much more that we could be talking about, and I know that that opportunity will happen. We first and foremost send, you know, prayers for everyone's physical well-being, and um, we hope that your work will be able to continue and to flourish, to thrive in elevating the sacredness of human narrative in writing a new and different story for the political narrative in a place that, uh, that carries our hearts and the hearts of so many others. Um, Yoav, you hope you know you are always welcome uh, to be with us at, at Sha'ar in New Jersey or now, wherever it is that, that, uh, that we may find ourselves through the blessing of technology. But I you know, really, I, uh, you know, I grew up in Leonia, so I know, uh, I remember. <laughs> but more than that, I hope that uh, I hope we'll be able to be with you at Sulcha and with the family that you're building at Sulcha in Mirza Hashem and a trip that the world will still, allow us to take soon. You still have an open invitation to come and, uh, and join us and, uh, we really appreciate uh, the contribution that uh, the congregation made that, uh, that enabled an entire evening at Sulcha to take place. And I uh, really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today. Yeah, uh, we are grateful for your courage and for your commitment to the work that you're doing, really. Thank you so Thanks much so for much. being with us.
We should be judged 
more by our compromises than by our ideals. Ideals tell us who we would like to be. Compromises tell us who we are. Those are the words of another of my favorite contemporary philosophers, Professor Abishai Margalit of the Hebrew University from his book on compromise and rotten compromises. It's been said that peace tests our humanity even more than war, that to love and respect another is a greater challenge for most of us than to reject and to hate. Here we are in the three weeks before Tisha B'Av, as our focus spiritually turns to personal accountability in preparation for mourning the destruction of Jerusalem, the two ancient temples, which ultimately will lead us into the month of Elul, a month of tshuva, of repentance, of return, when we will start preparing for the High Holy Days. Because of all that, because of the setting, the calendar setting that we find ourselves in, our reflections tonight in Yoav's words resonate on so many different levels. When we will ultimately find ourselves immersed in that process of preparation, of introspection, of repentance and return, we'll find that it's actually a very paradoxical process because it asks us to simultaneously strive to be more of whom it is that we're capable of being and to accept who it is that we are to realistically evaluate what it is we're able to change and to be more mindful of what we cannot. We know that as many lives have been damaged by living beyond their reach as those that have been by living below their potential. So how do you define the essence of who you are? By the possibilities embedded within you or by the limitations that define you? I came upon these lines early in his book and they struck me deeply. We should be judged more by our compromises than by our ideals. Ideals tell us who we would like to be. Compromises tell us who we are. As kids, we're taught that compromise is a basic tool that we're gonna need in life. Give a little and get a little, we're told. Meet in the middle, cooperate. We teach our kids that if two or more people each get a little bit of what they want, everyone can be happy. Battling over what game to play, what restaurant to go to, all of I. What music to listen to in the car. Find a way to enable everyone to have at least some of their wishes fulfilled, and then all can be at least somewhat happy. We encourage, we expect friends, siblings, parents, and children to stretch themselves to accommodate one another and help each other realize their own dreams and aspirations, which may become limited as a result of the compromise, but will at least come true in part. Educators, mental health professionals of all kinds list learning to compromise as key to our ability to get along with others and to have healthy and fulfilling relationships. As we grow older, the compromises between us take on higher stakes. Can I accept a promotion if it means moving my family to another city? Should our home become kosher if it means imposing on my partner? How should we spend and invest our savings? But something else happens as we grow older too. We begin to clarify our values and beliefs, to discover what matters most to us, to stand up for ourselves. We develop goals and priorities and commitments, not all of which are subject to negotiation. We begin to see that compromise is not always virtuous, that sometimes compromising is a massive mistake. One of the most critical lessons we learn as we grow older, sometimes rather painfully, 
is to distinguish between what in our lives is negotiable and what really isn't. What Professor Margalit provocatively suggests is that we exude more dignity, more righteousness, and more integrity, not for our principles and convictions, but precisely for our compromises and concessions. What is so counterintuitive is the suggestion that rather than focusing on reaching for the proverbial stars, we might better use our time exploring how to invest as much kavanah, as much intention into the facts on the ground. Rather than following our dreams, we might be better off embracing our realities. The question is, how do we do that? Accepting that no one can have it all, that no one can live entirely according to their every belief and goal is the first compromise that we have to make with ourselves before we can negotiate with anybody else. Believing it is possible to have it all is exactly what fuels the notion that any compromise would only ever amount to surrender. Accepting ourselves as less than we might be capable of being, as having less than we might be worthy of, is the first step towards a healthy relationship with anybody else. Accepting others as less than what they're capable of being, or as getting less than what they may be worthy of, is the second, because compromise limits not only us, but the other too. Marguerite points out that compromising with spouses, children, siblings, colleagues, even enemies, takes place even before we begin to negotiate with them. Because simply acknowledging the other as a partner for negotiation validates them as worthy of our cooperation and lends credibility to their point of view. Willingness to compromise, not the compromise itself, makes space for empathy, an ingredient without which none of our relationships could thrive. And more, he suggests that compromise is most effective when we consider the other not our enemy, but rather our rival competing with us for access to the same limited resources. In the political sphere, those resources might be land, oil, water, power. In the personal realm, we compete for time, for attention, love, money, opportunity, validation. But that competition doesn't have to make us opponents. It could make us more productively rivals. If we accept that those with whom we conflict are not necessarily expressing totally opposite needs, but actually the same needs as ours, albeit in different forms, we might be moved to respond and compromise with greater respect and understanding. And when each side gives up a part of their dreams for the sake of a shared resolution, acknowledging the other's concession as being as valuable, as precious as our own changes the whole relationship, holding out the hope for lasting cooperation. The compromise challenges us to rethink the way battle lines are drawn when conflict arises, as it invariably will and does. Insisting, as so many of us do, that love is a zero-sum game, wherein only one of us can win as the other capitulates, comes with an exorbitant cost. Coming to the conversation about the future of Judaism with limited definitions of what an authentic Jewish life looks like similarly breaks the bank on Jewish unity. Promoting one single path, one single path to peace, predicated on one single vision of Jewish sovereignty, leaves us politically and morally impoverished and in an abiding state of war. There is no single image of a successful career, no single portrait of a stable family. There's no single picture of health and fitness and no single path to happiness. There is no single model of justice and no single vision of peace, not in any pure platonic sense, but also not in our own experience of human development. Compromise doesn't ask us to personally relinquish our goals or our ideals but to rethink how we could apply them to the contours of the landscapes in which we live every day.
Margalit asks us to distill the essence of our hopes and dreams to see if we can imagine them coming to realization in modified or even limited forms. To insist on only one image of our ideals is to not make of them ideals, but idols. And worshiping idols of Adazara is Judaism's way of describing the stultifying of personal, emotional, and spiritual growth, the ultimate betrayal of the gift of life we've been given. For idols are precisely the things that don't change. And if there's anything we know for certain about life, it's that change is ever present. Being willing to work within its demands and to rethink what life can look like, being open to the constantly evolving ways in which we can seek and find fulfillment is vital to being and to staying alive. And that goes for human beings, for communities, for religions, for societies, and for nations. We should be judged more by our compromises than by our ideals. Ideals tell us who we would like to be. Compromises tell us who we are. for a prayer. This is uh, a prayer that has been adapted by Rabbi David Seidenberg. It's a prayer that um, is based on what might be to many the familiar 
Tefillah Lishlom Medinat Yisrael, a prayer for the peace of Israel. Rabbi Seidenberg adapted it to become more expansive and more inclusive, understanding that praying for the peace of Israel must include praying for the healing of its relationships, its neighboring countries with the Palestinian people, and that the best reality for Israel, as Yoav said, is a reality that is best for all of her citizens and for everyone who lives in the land, no matter where that may be. Our nurturer, God in heaven and on earth, rock of Israel and its redeemer, bless the state of Israel so that she may become the beginning of the flowering of our redemption. Shield her with your embrace of love and spread over her your sukkah, your shelter of peace. Send your light and your righteousness to her heads and ministers, advisors and judges and to the nation that elects them. Align them with the spirit of justice from you, as it says, Zion through justice will be redeemed and her captives through righteousness. Rescue all of your land from the Jordan River to the sea from the spilling of blood. And rescue all of her inhabitants and sojourners under every government from haters without and haters within. Grant peace in the land and secure calm to her defenders, lasting joy to all her inhabitants and real hope for all her peoples. And let us say Amen. Oh, 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 oh,
ti Before we say goodnight, I just want to thank you all for being here with us, together with me and Dan, for listening to Yoav, for learning from him, taking away the profound beauty and power of recognizing someone's humanity. We have some wonderful things coming up in the next few weeks. Look out for information about some Netflix watch parties that we're launching in a couple of weeks, just to have some fun together, share some community. Starting on July 29th, we'll watch a tribute to Carl Reiner on his Shloshim. And then on August 19th, we'll showcase Michael Solomonov's film In Search of Israeli Cuisine. On Shabbat morning, August 8th, I invite you to join me together with Lisa Kasdan for a Shabbat morning service filled with beautiful music, deep reflection, and transformative learning. A chance for us to share Shabbat, community, togetherness, even as we all remain apart. Dan and I look forward to seeing you together here next week on Ground Waves. Dan, thank you as always for your incredibly beautiful music and inspired choices that amplify the themes that we come together to think about, to feel, and to grow from. Good night. I love to you all.